My name is Jose Alvarez. I teach at New York University School of Law. This is the first part of my second lecture on the rise and evolution of bilateral investment treaties. The phenomenal rise in the number of bilateral investment treaties, or BITS, came after 1989. States turned to treaties to protect each other's foreign investors at the same time that they turned to the market instead of socialist models for economic development. But the first bit ever concluded, the model for many subsequent European bilateral investment protection agreements that Europeans call BIPAs, was between Germany and Pakistan back in 1959. Although that treaty has since been replaced by a 2009 treaty, that first bit provides a good basis to understand how subsequent bits which today cover some 180 states, how those treaties added to foreign investors' protections. That treaty between Germany and Pakistan also remains relevant because although it is not itself in force, many bits that continue to be in effect today look quite a bit like it. So those who want to be effective lawyers in this field should be able to understand the contents of such treaties. As international lawyers know, a treaty's preamble is not meaningless verbiage. It is often used to inform an agreement's object and purpose. Under the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaty, Article 31.1, a treaty's object and purpose, along with a treaty's plain text and context, are the key tools licensed to be used for its interpretation. The Germany-Pakistan bits preamble was strikingly simple. The two states did not make grand promises to themselves or to the relevant business communities about what the new treaty would accomplish. The state parties sought only favorable conditions, as they put it, for investments by their respective nationals and companies. And they expressed hope that it was likely to, quote, promote further investment and increase prosperity, close quote. Like the Harvard Draft Convention, to protect alien property mentioned in my first lecture. That bit defined protected investments broadly. Its reciprocal protections applicable to each state's nationals or companies include any capital brought into the territory, quote, for investment in the shape of assets such as foreign exchange, goods, property rights, patents, and technical knowledge, close quote. The word investment is not otherwise defined. But the treaty is clear that it protects not only capital that enters after the bit was concluded, but prior existing investment from the two parties subject to some limits. The treaty rights accorded to each party's nationals and companies were actually quite sparse. That bit did not actually require each state parties to admit each other's investors into their respective territories. Article 1 only says that each state should, quote, endeavor to do so, quote, in accordance with its legislation and rules and regulations, close quote. Article 2 of that bid provided mutual assurances of non-discrimination uh, and non-discriminatory treatment, that is, with respect to activities, quote, including effective management, use, or enjoyment, close quote, of investment. But even this assurance was subject to any conditions that either party had imposed already on entry. Article 3 anticipates that investors of both parties would be subject to, quote, protection and security, close quote. Now, it is unclear whether this reference to protection and security refers to the, quote, full protection and security, close quote, 
that is a standard under customary international law. That guarantee, the customary standard, was generally seen as restricted to the physical protection states owe aliens, so that a foreign investor is owed the same reasonable police protection in case of riot or disorder that the state owes to its own citizens. But because this reference is not explicitly connected to customary law, some might see protection and security as requiring a state to extend legal protection from all kinds of harm and not just police protections. That bit between Germany and Pakistan affirms the Hull Rule discussed in my first lecture. It states that nationals or companies of either state party are not to be subjected to expropriation unless this is for a public benefit and compensation equal to the value of the property taken is paid in realizable currency. That article also provides that both the legality of the expropriation and the amount of compensation needs to be subject to review by, quote, due process of law, presumably, one thinks, in national courts. The Germany-Pakistan bit also affirms a contention that we saw was important back to Hamilton, uh, back in Hamilton's day in 1794, namely that foreign investors should not be compensated any less than any national should they suffer losses as a result of war or other armed conflict, revolution, or revolt, close quote, in the territory of either state. Under Article 3, if a state pays its own nationals or companies any restitution in such cases for such losses, it needs to provide the same restitution to aliens of the other state and needs to permit those aliens to transfer any payments out of the country. Under its Article 4, such transfers of capital were also to be permitted with respect to any profits or interests earned from foreign investments, as well as with respect to any monies generated were the investments liquidated. Further, such capital transfers would be permitted without delay and at reasonable rates of exchange based on current transactions and IMF-approved values. Germany and Pakistan also agreed that each shall, quote, observe any other obligation, close quote, it may have entered into with regard to investments by nationals or companies of the other party. This clause has come to be known as an umbrella clause. It seems to transform a contract breach between a host state and an investor into a breach of the bit itself. In the event of a dispute as to the interpretation or application of the bit, the Germany-Pakistan bit sticks to the traditional state-to-state -state methods that were endorsed since the days of the Jay Treaty. Under that bit, should consultations between the state parties fail to resolve any dispute concerning its meaning, they could choose to have their dispute resolved by an arbitral tribunal of their choice or the International Court of Justice, ICJ. Now, even though the German-Pakistan bit was designed to specifically protect investors and investments of both states, that bilateral treaties sparse and hedged protections fell short of those that were extended to businesses and nationals in post-World War II FCNs that the United States concluded, for example, with Japan six years before. And it's worthwhile looking at that FCN treaty.
By the time the 1953 FCN between the United States and Japan was concluded, the absence of multilaterally agreed rules had made the world's leading capital exporter, the U.S., aware that it should use its network of bilateral FCNs to provide what it called a code of private foreign investment. Accordingly, that post-World War II FCNs, unlike the United States' interwar FCNs, specifically mentions in its preamble that its purpose is to encourage mutually beneficial investments. While that treaty retains some old FCN provisions guaranteeing to nationals and vessels rights to enter and to transport, transport goods, most of its provisions are directed specifically at protecting alien property and corresponding rights to establish and operate businesses. I show on the PowerPoint some of these investment protections echo those found in the German-Pakistan bit. Both the FCN and the German-Pakistan bits affirm the whole rule. Both affirm the right to transfer capital in and out of the country. Both affirm the need for protection and security. And as that PowerPoint also shows, the U.S.-Japan FCN is otherwise a much superior vehicle for protecting investors. That FCN contains many more business protections and at greater depth. It includes the crucial right to enter the U.S. or to enter Japan as an investor from the other country, and not only a commitment to endeavor to do so, as we saw in the German-Pakistan bid. Like other U.S. post-World War II FCNs, it gives investors residual protections under international law, like the International Minimum Standard of Treatment, and it provides backup guarantees against arbitrary or discriminatory treatment. Further, it concretizes that ban on discrimination by saying that states can't impair, quote, legally acquired rights, close quote, relating to specific related activity. It also plainly bans discrimination that is based on nationality by requiring that alien traders and investors in each other's territories get the same rights as each accords to its own nationals, as well as nationals of its most favored allies. This requirement to accord national and MFN, most favored nation, treatment is repeatedly affirmed throughout the U.S.-Japan FCN. Those nationals, treatment, and MFN standards apply to most of the critical matters involving the operation of a business, including to access to courts and administrative tribunals, to engaging in commercial and other business activities, to acquiring and disposing of property, to acquiring and maintaining patents, to the free payment, remittance, and transfers of funds, and even to matters of internal taxation. In lieu of the German-Pakistan bit's rather vague reference to the need to accord due process of law, the Japan-U.S. FCN and others of this period include specific assurances that the states publish relevant laws and regulations and have available an appeals process for prompt and impartial review of relevant administrative actions. That treaty also extends its protection to an alien's right to arbitrate should arbitration clauses be included in the contracts between each other's nationals and companies. Like the German-Pakistan bit, the U.S.-Japan FCN does not contain a general right to, quote, fair and equitable treatment, close quote, which we now call 
FET. That FCN agreement affirms a right to FET only in narrow circumstances, namely with respect to governmental purchases, the awarding of concessions, and other government benefits. But it should be noted that this omission of FET is an outlier among post-World War II FCNs by the United States, concluded with the United States, of this era. The U.S.-Japan FCN does not include a general FET reference, only because Japan thought that FET was vague and objected to it. But most U.S. post-war FCNs do contain a general provision entitling the nationals and companies of each party to fair and equitable treatment, or simply, in some cases, equitable treatment. This is true of U.S. FCNs with Ireland, Korea, Israel, Greece, Germany, Netherlands, Ethiopia, Iran, Denmark, and Nicaragua. The, as the power plant point also indicates, U.S. FCNs of this period evince an intent to protect the state's own rights to regulate in the public interest. The U.S.-Japan FCN carves out certain exceptions to its investor protections to enable host states to regulate. That treaty's duty to reciprocally admit individuals seeking to enter for commercial or investment purposes is, for example, subject to a reservation to permit exclusion or expulsion for reasons of health, morality, and security. Its national treatment guarantee to nationals and companies of either party to engage in all types of commercial or other business activity still enables the respective states to carve out certain sector, sensitive sectors for only their own nationals. That treaty also gives states some room to impose exchange restrictions on transfers of capital and permits, and more generally, the application of measures, it says, that any state deems, quote, necessary to fulfill the obligations of a party for the maintenance or restoration of international peace and security or necessary for its essential security interests, close quote. Looking at the FCNs that preceded the rise of BITS is relevant for a number of reasons. First, post-World War II FCNs indicate the baseline protections that foreign investors of major parties, powers that is, such as U.S. and Japan, were accustomed to giving each other. Further, given the political difficulties of giving favored rights only to foreign investors, these treaties may also suggest the basic rule of law protections that even local businesses in those states anticipated. Second, these post-World War II FCNs matter because they mostly remain in effect despite the proliferation of later bits by those countries. Third, since countries like the U.S. have traditionally not concluded modern bits with respect to many of the countries with which it has an FCN, for some pairs of countries, such as the U.S. and Japan, FCNs contain the most relevant investment protections in place with respect to each other's nationals and companies even today. Fourth, as I will discuss, Investment guarantees contained in many of the U.S.'s FCNs in the post-War War II period have been carried over into international investment agreements, including BITS, even when these do not involve the U.S. as a treaty partner. Fifth, as I will also discuss, other FCN design elements 
from the use of model text to negotiate, to including non-negotiable core elements, to having their contents, both substantive rights for investors as well as state exceptions, all reflect U.S. pre-existing laws. All those design elements were incorporated into later U.S. bids and surprisingly into the negotiation of many other international investment agreements, not including the United States. Six, since FCNs included protections for foreign traders of goods and for foreign investors, they set important precedents for more contemporary free trade agreements with investment chapters. Today, we call them free trade FTAs, and this includes such agreements as the later North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, and its successor, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, the USMCA, or the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP-2 for short. So in other words, FCNs, like those treaties, were both trade and investment agreements, and as we'll see, that may have influenced their content. There are other aspects of how U.S. FCNs were negotiated that are worthy of note. The United States used a model FCN text, periodically updated over time, that accorded U.S. negotiators a limited degree of case-by-case flexibility with respect to some issues, such as sectoral exceptions to national treatment on entry that a partner country could request. While at the same time, that model text insisted that there be no deviation from a common core purpose orientation, or basic content. That common core, such as a commitment by all FCN partners to adhere to the whole rule, would ensure consistency with fundamental U.S. principles. This approach tolerated, for example, demands by certain treaty partners, such as we've seen Japan, to avoid mention of FET so long as the rest of the common core of rights within the U.S. model FCN was left intact. As is suggested by this insistence on certain non-negotiable core principles, the United States did not use FCNs as vehicles for tit-for-tat concessions. It saw these treaties as affirming certain stable rules that would remain in place for at least the initial 10 years of those treaties' duration, and preferably indefinitely. In addition, the United States post-World War II FCNs emphasized the rights of corporate enterprises, particularly the right of such entities to enjoy non-discriminatory treatment, both pre- and post-entry. The U.S. saw these requirements as consistent with the grand design of the U.S. Constitution discussed in my first lecture, where the U.S. itself and its 50 states' laws was consistent with non-discriminatory free market for trade and commerce. This meant that while the U.S. negotiating partners may need to adjust their laws and practices to conform to the U.S. model FCN, U.S. treaty negotiators believed that the U.S. did not need to adjust its existing constitutional, federal, or state laws in order to be in compliance with its own FCN. The U.S.'s post-World War II FCNs, therefore, are a good gateway to understanding the U.S. bid program and its evolution of U.S. international investment agreements over time, but there also are good ways of understanding other international investment agreements by other countries. The U.S. BIT program is a good way of understanding the broader international investment regime 
for several reasons. First, a focus on some of the most investor-protective treaties ever concluded in the late 1980s and 1990s, which happened to be U.S. bits, helps to explain the further trajectory of the regime, including why such treaties have generated such controversy, even within a country like the U.S. known to defend aliens' rights to property. A second reason why it's important to look at U.S. bits over time is that their own development is a good illustration of how many other states have, some cases following the U.S., also rebalanced these treaties using the same tools and for many of the same reasons. The U.S. bid program is useful, in other words, not only because it reflects the views of what has been the most powerful capital exporter throughout the 20th century, but also because in many ways the U.S. approach has not been unique but characteristic of others. It is easy to associate the rise of U.S. bits, which I'm now about to discuss, with the presidency of Ronald Reagan, who was famous for defending the market and free trade and capital foes, as he called it, a win-win for all countries. But in reality, the U.S. initiated its bid program during the prior presidency of Jimmy Carter, who was best known for elevating human rights as a priority of U.S. foreign policy. In early 1977, officials in the U.S. State Department proposed a new series of bilateral agreements that would go beyond the terms of post-World War II U.S. FCNs, and even beyond the investment protections that were extended by Europeans in its own bilateral investment protection agreements, then known as BIPAs, as I've said. As the PowerPoint indicates, the U.S. bid program adhered to certain design elements that are familiar to anyone who studied the U.S. FCNs, as we have just done. The U.S. rationales for its new program would have also been understood by Alexander Hamilton, whose defense of the Jay Treaty I described in my first lecture. Ever since that Jay Treaty, the U.S. had sought to protect the rights of foreign investors in its territory. The U.S. bid program would adhere to the same general approach and rationale that justified the U.S. post-World War II FCNs. U.S. bits were seen, in short, as consistent with David Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage, whereby all states, rich or poor, would be better off if they allowed the free market to work and permitted their nationals to produce and sell to others whatever each country was best at making. Its rationales, the contents of these treaties, were consistent with the view that market conditions, not governments, should dictate where capital should go. Accordingly, U.S. bits would not contain governmental measures to encourage the entry of foreign investors. Bits would not contain trade facilitation clauses that would, for example, seek to attract foreign investors by giving them unique government exceptions from taxes or give them special subsidies. These are not in U.S. bits. The premise, then, that free capital flows was a universal good meant that the U.S. did not sell its treaties as principally about attracting future greater streams of U.S. investors. The U.S. saw bids as going beyond signaling wel to welcome foreign prospective investors. Accordingly, that's why they extended their protections to foreign investors who were already in the country. U.S. negotiators and bit promotional literature 
suggested to prospective treaty parties that while concluding a bid with the U.S. On ge generally sent a positive signal to capital markets, this could not guarantee that that country would receive incoming U.S. capital. As with its own prior FCN negotiations, the new bits would be negotiated off a U.S. model text. They would affirm long-standing U.S. policies and national laws in favor of an open door to capital flows. U.S. bits, unlike European uh, equivalents, would include the right of investors to enter a country and not just assure fair post-entry treatment. Given their basis on what the U.S. believed were solid economic rules that should be applicable to all, U.S. bits would accordingly be negotiated on a take-it-or-leave-it basis, uh, at least insofar as they would affirm certain core investor rights consistent with current U.S. laws and with the rights already contained in U.S. post-World War II FCNs. These core non-negotiable guarantees would include affirmation of customary law principles like the whole rule and bans on denials of justice, guarantees of FET and national and MFN treatment, and the guarantee of readily available capital transfers to enable businesses to operate and to expand. The U.S. government saw these treaties as serving as a vehicle for the export of rule of law values. For the U.S., its bits would have an educational function. They would generally improve the investment climate in partner countries, and not only to the benefit of U.S. investors, they would inform capital importing states, namely developing countries, about the type of legal climate that investors needed to thrive. Like Richard Nixon's old warnings to those who would harm U.S. investors, U.S. bits would signal the continuing importance of such issues for U.S. foreign policy. Countries that would sign onto a treaty as investor protective as those early U.S. bits were, were basically told they were not just signaling that they were on the side of the U.S. politically, they were also sending a message to the world and their own investors that they were open for business in a post-Cold War environment that was turning to market capitalism as the sole acceptable method for economic development. Further. Like USFCNs, the, un the United States new bits, bits would affirm customary international law principles in defense of aliens' property rights that had long been endorsed by the U.S. government. The U.S. bid affirms that these principles remain valid despite challenges in places like the U.N. General Assembly. But like USFCNs, the U.S. bits would also include a multitude of additional specific treaty rights going far beyond custom. Unlike FCNs, however, they would focus totally on investment protection and be able to drill down to give more precision to these rights. Indeed, they would provide more detail, more protection than their European counterparts, like the old German, uh, Germany-Pakistan bids. It was crucial to the U.S. to go beyond its own FCNs and many European equivalents in one critical respect the U.S. bits would follow and expand on the precedent set by, by only some European investment treaties, such as the Indonesia-Netherlands bit of 1968. That treaty, most probably the first investment treaty to include a clause permitting in advance of any dispute foreign investors themselves to bring claims against their host states without involving the investor's home state or getting its cooperation. If that was the first bit, including ISDS, 
the U.S. decided it would emulate it. So therefore, the U.S. bit would contain that state, it would say that state parties would give their mutual advanced consent, allowing their respective investors to bring arbitral claims against them for violations of the treaty. The U.S. was, of course, not a newcomer to the challenge of making treaties enforceable. It had learned the painful lesson that treaties without enforceable dispute settlement provisions, like that original definitive treaty of the peace between the American colonies and Great Britain that I described in my first lecture, it had learned that you could end up not having a treaty enforced unless you provided for its enforcement. The U.S. also wanted its new investor protective instrument to be less dependent on enforcement by either local courts or the U.S. government's own actions as through diplomatic espousal as the home state of injured investors. The U.S. State Department had frankly grown tired of spending time on diplomatic espousals, and it had learned to be leery of state-to-state -state dispute settlement, whether in the ICJ or through state-to-state -state arbitrations, as under the Jay Treaty, which, as we've seen, did not quite work. It found mechanisms like ICSID attractive and agreed that ICSID arbitration could, quote, depoliticize, close quote, U.S. foreign investors' claims and by leaving the U.S. government out of it. Investor state arbitration held the prospect of avoiding complications to U.S. relations just because of one or more outstanding claims by U.S. investors. Accordingly, the U.S. decided early on that its bits would not resort, as did the Germany-Pakistan bit, or its own old FCNs, to the ICJ for enforcement. Instead, it would resort to investor state arbitration, including, but not only, the mechanism established in the ICSID Convention. In accordance with these design principles, early U.S. bit negotiators did not exert pressure on states to conclude a bit. It was initially negotiated under the assumption that only states whose investment laws and policies were already in conformity with the treaty's terms would be serious candidates for ratification. Indeed, U.S. bit negotiators routinely examined the prospective treaty partners' own laws and, repeated, and reportedly refused to engage in a bit negotiation, even with a country that expressed tentative interest in concluding a bit, if that country's laws were unsatisfactory and a bit negotiation was seen as a non-starter. The U.S., simply put, did not want to conclude a bit with a country that could not or would not comply with the bit's critical terms. It saw the purpose of bits as paving the way for smooth investor-host state relations, not for a pileup of contentious investor-state complaints based on ill treatment. U.S. negotiators did not offer concessions in non-investment areas to entice signatories to its bits and refused to include provisions designed to specifically promote investment flows, as we've discussed. In the second half of this lecture, I will then discuss the future evolution of U.S. bits.